0: Hey, this is Christy with MacroOps. Ops. This week I'm talking with Biran. He's a member of our comm center. It's a private Slack group we have at uh, Macro Ops where we generally, I guess, crowdsource a bunch of ideas, uh, put a lot of articles in there, share a lot of thoughts. And um, it's kind of the center of communications, I guess. That's why it's called the comm center uh, for everything we do at Macro Ops. Um, Beren's been fairly prolific uh, in his macro writings, uh, definitely has some really interesting views he, you know, I kinda, I was introduced to him by a number of members of the community who are either <laughs> re commenting or just say, wow, this guy's got some amazing views. Uh, everybody's really excited about when he puts, put something out there. Uh, so I wanted to reach out to him and have a chat. Um, He's a, uh, he runs a, a family office uh, and not a big, fancy hedge fund guy, right? I've only had a dozen cups of coffee so far today, so that's how that's happening. Um, he's uh, In my mind, these are the people, uh, the retail investors, these small family offices and or large family offices. These are people who are not focused on raising money, so they're not trying to speak a narrative. They're actually just trying to make money. They're actually putting their own money in the, their skin in the game, their own money on the line. The positions they take are for themselves and for the outcome that they're interested in, uh, which is very much aligned with what generally the average investor or uh, institutions and a lot of people we work with are after. They're actually after those views. They want to know what people are thinking. They want to know what people are actually spending money on and not just yelling into Twitter. Um with that i guess we'll kind of um start out uh is there's anything else you wanted to add byron introducing or bieran sorry
1: (laughs) no that's great thanks chris
0: all right um so what i wanted to start out with was everybody's favorite subject on the internet especially in the twitters is tesla and tesla q um You can pretty much guarantee that if I throw Tesla, Tesla Q on the subject line of this podcast, we'll probably get two to three times more listeners than we will. uh, If I just put, here's an interesting short. Uh, (laughs) Tesla is very, um, very challenging subject. It's a a very dramatic subject. People have extreme views on both sides uh, and some and some rather sober views too. They, uh, especially with your writing, uh, Baron is very, um, a very clean, very sober, very to the point. This is why this is not working. And, um, this is what the potential outcome is. I don't want to steal your thunder here. So why don't you, uh, tell us what your thoughts are on Tesla and how you came in to be a, a Tesla bear.
1: Uh, sure. Thanks. Um, well, I got really involved with the uh, Tesla Bear thesis through Twitter and the Tesla Cube community there. Um, it had been on my radar for a while, but it was never something I thought was immediately actionable. And then, you know, at the end of last year, um, there was some noise basically about how Tesla had become the safety trade where everything else was going down and Tesla was going up. And that was strange. Um, and that got me looking into it um, a bit more in a bit more detail. Um and what I discovered was basically Tesla's short interest had peaked around fifty percent in the middle of last year and then at the end of December had dropped down to about twenty percent. And it really looked like what had happened was that a lot of players had gotten knocked out of their positions because of a lack of liquidity, and Tesla was basically being bit up by everyone, you know, having to face the redemptions and close out positions. Um which that's that was a big you know, like, okay, pay attention to this, because if it's something that so many people were convinced was true, but now they were being knocked out of their positions, it seemed like it was going to present a great entry, basically. And that's kind of where I really started paying attention. Um, and then the Tesla Q community was amazing, because the, the amount of detail analysis there, there's people running around taking pictures of inventory in lots, there's lawyers pouring over every single filing, you know, there's uh, mechanical and automotive engineers talking about the technology about you know, the braking systems and the uh, fully self-driving cars and all of that. So you're getting a lot of detail, but then the problem becomes how do you actually take it all in and manage it? And that's sort of been where I've been trying to contribute back to the community a bit is just say, okay, I've, taken, I've read all this stuff. Here's what I'm thinking with links back to the tweets. So it's all you know documented and you can kind of follow the flow. And this really honestly does look like one of the most amazing short setups I've, I could imagine seeing. And the timing on it looks like it's finally right, whereas a lot of bears have been you know, following Tesla for a long time, saying that it's about to fall apart for years, and they've basically been wrong, right? The, 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 the stock has gone sideways. They haven't actually gotten – they might have been able to trade around it, but their thesis of Tesla falling apart hasn't really come to fruition yet. And I think the next few months are looking particularly dangerous for Tesla, um, and we can go into why.
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, so I'm a chart guy and most uh, most of the time I'll I'll just pull up a chart it and and kind of that that at least gives me some context of where we've been and you know where maybe we could potentially be going but the thing about tesla is we've been in a very sideways since about mid 2017 it's been in this sideways volatile market where it's running up to uh you know, right around the highs, up a 400 and down to uh, the bottom range, around two, probably 260, 250, somewhere around there. 150-point trading range, pretty solid, generally speaking. And every time we get down to this, this uh, below the 300 level, uh, we've won two, three, four, probably about four or five times since, uh, well, I guess, since 2018. So a little over a year. Uh, it turns around in in spectacular fashion uh, runs to the top of the range and then something somebody does something stupid and <laughs> gets uh, <laughs> gets gets Twitter fired up again and uh, and, and gets it going down. The one thing I do know or, you know, I really uh, I know the most most polarizing part about Tesla is it is a machismo, a bit of a macho trade to be bearish. On Twitter, uh, and just generally following the, you know, Real Vision, Zero Head, like, you know, all, all the media outlets are, are basically, or the, you know, the more modern, the um, more internet based media outlets are very much bearish on and, and very prolific on Twitter about how bearish they are on Tesla. And a lot of them have just gotten their faces ripped off over and over and over or they're sitting at a pretty much at a break even level, give or take a few weeks above their uh, you know at, at a better entry at you know in the money, let's call it puts or something uh, and then a couple of weeks you know where they're eating some pain and it's we're down to the bottom of the range and this is where you're coming in saying this is where things are starting to get hairy what, uh, let's let's dive in on that.
1: Um, yeah, so there's a, there's a number of different factors that have come together, I think, to make this a particularly interesting time, uh, to be bearish on Tesla. Um, a lot of these factors looked like they were coming together before, but then I think Elon, uh, was able to surprise a lot of people with with what was in his bag of tricks, I think is kind of how that all played out. Um, so, I mean, one of the biggest things that Tesla is facing is that, they basically are in a position where they're um, trying to grow into a very difficult macro environment. And, you know, this really wasn't the case two years ago. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't even really the case for the beginning of 2018, but now you're looking at the U S you know, U S car sales have basically been flat and now they're projecting, you know, a downward uh, direction for just overall car sales. And we're coming into this year with about a, um, Four um, percent. Oh, sorry, three percent more inventory than we did last year. Uh, while you're also getting more competition in the EV uh, environment, where there's more electric vehicles coming into the market this year, and all of those are continuing to get the $7,500 tax benefit that just expired for Tesla. So, in terms of just maintaining their market share, this is a much harder year for them to do that than it was last year. So we're coming into um,
0: we've also got a lot of competition in the space. I think, uh, well, let's just, uh, let's just name them out. we got the Audi, we got the Mercedes, the mini BMW i3, the Nissan Leaf, Porsche brought theirs out this year, Kia and Volvo. Those that's three, six, eight.
1: eight yeah. And apparently, yeah. And those are the big ones. Apparently if you start digging, you'll find more, uh, you know niche ev players and all of that so there's a lot of competition that's coming online specifically this year and again they have literally a you know for the first half of the year they have a four thousand dollar cost advantage just from the benefits and then the cost advantage for tesla the, the subsidy for tesla is decaying from here forward so it's just becoming harder and harder for them to match the pricing
0: and they're um they released the, the this uh, three Model Three. There it is, the Model Three, not the three series. That would be a BMW. Uh, how's <laughs> that been going for them?
1: Um, so last year was amazing. Q3, Q4, they had you know massive shipments of Model Three, and of course the bull argument is, look, that did so well that this is clearly setting the platform for Tesla to go and take over the world with electric vehicles. Um, the bear counter to that is. Well, you had three years to collect reservations and you shipped into that over the course of six months. So, of course, it looks good. But your stable, steady state run rate going forward is much less. Um, And one of the things that really lends credence to the the bear thesis is that literally on Tesla Q, you go on Twitter, you'll find pictures of lots of Model 3s just sitting there in inventory, some of them buried under like two feet of snow. And it's like, okay, what's going on here? Um, and another thing that kind of lends credence to the bear thesis is you start digging in and you realize that in Q3 and Q4, Tesla actually incentivized their own employees to buy Model 3s by turning in PTO and you know doing this discounting sort of program. And that just doesn't sound like the kind of behavior a car company would take on if they were having trouble meeting demand, which was technically the story for last year. So there's just some cracks around that bull thesis that make you go, wait why would they be doing this
0: so there's a large inventory sitting around and they can't seem to fulfill orders i mean from from a non-car buyer perspective yeah you know, i've driven a tesla a few times they're enjoyable for sure it's kind of gimmick or fun to hit the gas and just move Little, you know kind of star trekky um uh-huh. that's that's very cool uh, but Yeah, I'm no Tesla fanboy, and I'm no Tesla hater. Generally speaking, I'm just, you know, whatever. (laughs) uh, It's a car on the road. So, um, so in in essence, we're talking about there's just a big pile of those cars, the Model Threes, sitting in parking lots, and the narrative being that there are there is huge demand, and we just can't keep up to demand. And in order to make it look as if they're fulfilling them, they're getting their employees. To purchase them as opposed to these
1: orders, which are outstanding, is that what I'm catching? Yes, exactly. Like they definitely had a large backlog, but it doesn't seem like the backlog was as large as Tesla's selling. Got it.
0: Okay, all right. Now that that all sounds exactly what uh, the narrative it sounds pretty good. Um, he is quite a. Uh, I mean, the guy's a visionary. I got to give him that. Like you know to. Go for, Or at least he's been able to execute pretty well to this point on a product that just going head to head with Detroit, uh, Germany, Japan, just going head to head with these big, massive players, the incumbents and saying, yeah, I'm going to take that on. I give that guy a lot of respect in that sense, but he's done a number of things that seem to be just something that a, a public company CEO or even just a regular CEO, even out of the Bay Area. (laughs) <laughs> um <laughs> seems a little seems a little wild what is Definitely. the yeah so next up i see the balance sheet and this is everything this is the i mean this this is how a business runs this is sure you know work in progress sure your inventory sure you have everything to uh all these other stories coming up but the balance sheet is where we really start to see where things are not what they appear to be is that right
1: Yes. And I mean, I think, honestly, one of the biggest problems that Tesla has is that they've got this giant valuation that's completely disconnected from their balance sheet. And it's kind of hanging around their neck, cutting off a lot of strategic options. Do you expand on that a little bit? So the book value for Tesla is about $26 a share. Um, and obviously, it's trading right now at about $270. Um <laughs> And so what it looks like happened is that Tesla made a bunch of commitments to their suppliers. They have a bunch of guaranteed purchase agreements. They have, um, you know, probably a bunch of invoices that are not being paid on time. And they have all these leases that they tried to get out of and then reverse course on and all of these other things. And what's happening is that they should likely be in bankruptcy and they should restructure their commitments. They'd be able to put their company back together and have an ongoing concern matching their commitments to what their command, what their demand is turning out to be. But that's just not an option because the equity holders would have to take a 90% haircut to even get back to book value. And the odds of them getting the full value of their book value per share is very, very low. And so if they were trading at like $30, they'd probably just be, okay, well, we need to just fix this. But since they're trading at $300, no one's willing to take that sort of haircut. And the Elon has quite
0: a bit of his own equity tied up into this.
1: Yeah, he owns about 20% of the company. Um, and so th- that's actually a whole separate thing that we should talk about, is just what Elon's financial condition might be, which is one of the other reasons why this is such a great short, because you can actually see the uh, a lot about the other players that are holding positions against you, um, which is a pretty interesting story in and of itself. Well, then let's, uh, um,
0: that's, let's, I like interesting stories.
1: <laughs> so Elon has, if you look, if you do your digging, you see that Elon probably has some around a billion dollars in debt against Tesla shares. Um, his Tesla equity stake at 20% of the company is about $10 billion. Um, and then there's um, a known document filed as part of their, their filings that the board has limited him to taking out um debt equal to about 25% of his equity stake, so about $2.5 billion. So he should theoretically, if he had any sort of liquidity concern, be able to tap up to another billion and a half dollars of debt from just his Tesla shares. Um, And so everyone says, okay, he's not really in that much danger of a margin call. And from all of the things that we can find in terms of the financials, that makes sense. That's the story. But his actions in the last three months do not match that. In um, December, he mortgaged you know, five of his mansions for $61 million. In January, he um, did a sale leaseback of his jet for $50 million. So he tapped $111 million of liquidity through non-Tesla shares, which just that's a very strange thing to do when you technically have you know, 10 times that much debt capacity available through just your Tesla shares. Um, there's also stories about him trying to use his SpaceX shares to access additional debt financing um, as part of the, the debt raise that they were doing in November of last year that was originally at $750 million, but only got fulfilled at $250 million. So he's showing signs of financial stress that, don't, that we can't document. We don't have numbers to say this is what the margin call number is going to be or whatever, but his actions just suggest that this is a person in trouble.
0: Yeah. Um, six mansions, boy, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's tough on him. I'm sorry for that big guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anecdotally, his, it's hard bell- to feel
1: sorry for him. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anecdotally his, uh, Bel Air mansion, uh, is right across street from a fairly well-known activist investor. Um, and you know, this is just, you know, if you're in LA, you kind of get this stuff. And, uh, he basically when if you drive through Bel Air, it's just a, a massive reconstruction uh, everywhere. Every house is somebody comes in to the new some money, buys a house in Bel Air, and then just completely remodels it for the next couple of years. Um, part of Elon's remodel was to buy the house next to him, level it completely, and turn it into a parking lot for his cars and his guests. that uh, obviously that was pre. <laughs> pre uh, mortgage level uh of its life. Right. But, but it's uh you know that that was flying pretty close to the sun when that happened i gotta say you know that's a uh, that's a pretty interesting one now you were um when we talked when we touched base on this one last week uh you were you're you're suggesting that we're getting pretty close to this thing actually happening like not just not just the Tesla q uh story on Twitter not just uh another you know, article out there, things are actually coming to a head rather soon. What sort of catalysts uh, are you thinking? You know, if you if you were to put a handful together, that if any one of them hit, it's it's off to the race. Well, not to the races, you're <laughs> off to the poorhouse, I guess. On the for the wrongs. Well, what are you thinking there?
1: Um, well, I basically feel like there's three categories of catalysts that could. Play out. Um, Number one, Tesla could just straight up run out of cash. And that would mean that they miss a payroll, they miss a required bond payment, something that's highly visible where they could no longer deny that they are basically insolvent. Um, So that would be the step one. Um, Step two is they could get forced into that position by one of their vendors. Um, It only takes three vendors who are owed at least $15,000 to petition for Tesla to be in bankruptcy. And once something like that becomes public, it should also. Um, You know, move everything along. Um, And the third option is that there's a set of what I call powder kegs, which are basically a lot of a host of you know open issues where Tesla's either got ongoing litigation, they're being investigated by the SEC and the DOJ. Any one of these things that could basically change the narrative on Tesla entirely. And what will likely happen is if it doesn't go directly into bankruptcy, the Big institutions that hold this uh, that hold the shares. I mean, Tesla is a fairly closely held stock. There's Elon Musk, there's T Rowe Price, there's Fidelity, there's a few large institutions that hold like I think it's 60 or 70 percent of the float. Once they start to panic, there's no liquidity on the other side. As long as they're liquidating slowly and orderly, right now they've been able to dump their shares into retail investors. And if you look at the counts of the Robin, you know, the Robinhood customers that are holding Tesla shares, it's just ticking up and up and up. Um, But once they have to really get out, once they're really worried about their position, there's just not going to be any liquidity on the other side. And that'll destroy the stock price.
0: Yeah, well, you've uh, I'm going to I'm going to point in the show notes to this article. Well, not just the article to your entire blog, because you have probably, I I would say, like three or four uh, articles in a row on the Tesla Um, short thesis. You have really well documented and i mean i just gotta say there's like a mountain of links out to if, if you really want to go down the rabbit hole and say okay what is you know give me some meat behind this theory like there's there's a flick uh, flicker album cataloging Wompy wheels for example
1: yeah
0: um you know you don't see that gm you don't see people taking photos of if if, if you ordered a well you go to the dealership and you buy a whatever a volt or whatever they are um and you literally take delivery of it right there and if there's something off you just drive right in you you don't hear about gm you don't hear about Ford. you don't hear about uh you know the big incumbent manufacturers and and yeah automobile manufacturers having those sort of issues they're one-offs they're big events if you have like an airbag situation which you know was out there we had the volvo situation all that's out there this is just an everyday thing for tesla like any one big event like on volvo or one one big recall on a chevy or something like that. that's a big event in the market i mean it gets a lot of news play tesla it's just daily like like there's another thing daily and it just doesn't get coverage even um i remember chelsea handler's friend or something and <laughs> their tesla caught on fire on santa monica boulevard if i recall I just just caught on fire like just yeah (laughs) kind of like the old uh what was that the samsung phones that were catching on fire um exactly
1: (laughs) i think this is really a case of price determining sentiment where you know these issues have been around for so long and the price hasn't collapsed so everyone's like "Well, this must not matter
0: (laughs) yeah well that's uh that's (laughs) i mean that's true it's definitely true right if uh if if everybody's If you got in on 100 and you're at uh, 269 right now, you're not going to start sweating until that thing gets close to 100. And then even then, you're probably not going to start sweating
1: much. Well, so this is one of the things I think why Tesla has such that sort of macho machismo sort of thing around being a Tesla bear is – Elon's in a very leveraged position if his actions are at all indicating the reality of his financial positions. So there's not a lot of likelihood of this thing ever trading at $100 or even $150. There's some number between 270 and there where Morgan Stanley, who has loaned him a bunch of money and taken the shares as collateral, they're going to have to start liquidating it. And once that happens, we get back into the large institutional investors panicking and no liquidity on the other side. And so I think one of the reasons why Tesla has so much interest is because your players are basically Elon Musk, who's a primary shareholder, 20%, super over leveraged. You've got you know, large institutions who are more or less stuck in their position and can't get out in one of those classic ways you read about in market wizards. And then you've got all these the, the small number of Tesla shorts who are you know, financially not that impactful. And then you've got these this cohort of Elon like disciples who refuse to admit any of these sort of negative sides and they just keep propping up this price. And so you're getting this amazing entry into these short positions and into these puts and all this other stuff because of that last cohort of true believers, which again, if the, if the share price was trading at $20, $30, I wouldn't be interested. There's just not that much juice in it. But when it's trading at $300, despite all of these fundamental concerns, it's like, okay, well, this is something I need to get right.
0: So you're thinking this could be a three, uh, well, 269 down to, you know, rather quickly to zero.
1: It may not go to zero right away, but I'm thinking like, like, I actually feel like I'm one of the most bearish of the bears. I read a lot of stuff on Twitter where they're like, oh, you know, I'm buying these puts for you know 200 and I'll sell them at 100. I'm like, I think this will go straight from like wherever Elon Musk gets margin called to like sub $10.
0: Just a major, just boom repricing, barely even any liquidity through the uh, through the event.
1: Is that what you're thinking? Exactly, because everyone knows that when Tesla goes into bankruptcy, the most important thing is going to become their book value per share, which is at twenty six dollars. Right. Without any of the risk associated, with that's just the book value. So you wouldn't trade, you wouldn't buy that at twenty six. You might buy it at book value when it's like say ten or five or whatever, and there's some sort of upside for a distressed investor to maybe come in. Those are like just known fundamentals that maybe the retail investors don't know, but you would expect the people at T Rowe Price to understand.
0: Yeah. Are there any? Uh, are there any offshore? I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, Saudi Arabia was was uh, a name that was thrown around earlier in uh, 2018. I guess the summer of 2018. You know anything about uh, any offshore sovereign wealth funds or other? automakers might be interested in, in jumping in and helping out?
1: Um, So again, this is where the market cap becomes a noose for them. Um, When you look at strategic acquirers, right, Tesla has about $24 billion in debt. Um, And if you compare that to the multiples that other companies are getting um, like, let me look up, if you look up like Fiat Chrysler, they are, their entire market cap is $30 billion. So even if you were to buy the equity at zero, you're taking on the equivalent of, Tesla, of Fiat Chrysler's worth of debt, ignoring the 500-plus lawsuits and liabilities and all that that you might be incurring along the way. So you, there's really not going to be anyone who's in a position to acquire Tesla as a company. There's a lot of people who might be interested in Tesla's assets separated from their liabilities, but that only happens after bankruptcy.
0: Right. China's always a... Uh a name that comes up with any technology company and and you know tesla we could probably put them more you know we could could put them on the side of of a technology company who just happens to be an automobile manufacturer uh i know that from time to time there is some tweets from certain political people who (laughs) have a large twitter following and maybe are potus um really having a lot, of, a lot of things to say about what China's doing in technology. Has there been anything, have you heard anything in that area?
1: Um, so the most interesting development, concrete development I've heard about with China is that China actually went through with a $520 million financing of the uh, Gigafactory 4, the Shanghai one. Um, so they're actually having their lenders contribute to that project. Um, but they're doing it in a very odd way it's four different banks so each one's making a fairly nominal commitment and the loans entirely re- uh, due by march of 2020 so it's less than a year period of time and tesla had to put up a bit, about 610 million dollars of collateral so you know there's a lot at stake for tesla if this project falls through as well it almost seems like the chinese are positioning to use tesla as a as a vector for their own stimulus programs more than they're using it for any sort of strategic or technological perspective.
0: What, what do you mean by uh, stimulus programs?
1: Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, studying China's history over the last 10 years, right, one of the things that they've done is they've invested heavily in infrastructure projects in building out, you know, rail lines and in buildings and all these other things that are more or less investments as opposed to consumption. And a lot of the stuff I've been reading has been saying that they are running out of steam on finding projects that could even possibly pr- be productive because they've just built everything and don't have a lot of consumer demand inside and the rest of the world's slowing. Um, so Tesla gives them an opportunity with a fairly ro- low risk profile to just throw a half a million or half a billion dollars at something and say, you know, let's keep our factories or, or our construction workers, you know, busy more or less. Oh, okay. I got it. And then... <laughs> Yeah. And then if it falls through, then they just take over the factory and they've got one more factory that one of their car makers could use to make EVs when the next cycle picks up.
0: Right. Right. Well, that's um, first of all, just uh, I mean, there, there's so much drama and so much uh, potential gore and and excitement, <laughs> blood and guts in the in the Tesla case. Are you how are you uh, how do you think is is probably let's say let's say. I'm me, my name's Chris, and I'm kind of thinking, yeah, you know, I kind of want to get in this uh, bottom of the range. We could snap at the bottom of the range um, and move rather quickly down. How would I take a low-risk approach? Because, again, that's about a 150-point trading range, 268.80 at the moment to let's call it right around 400. Again, so that's uh, almost 100, well, 140, 130 points of potential upside, sideways trading action bounce, how would I get in there at a fairly low, like, how, you know, are you, are you doing puts, buying puts, or are you doing spreads? Or are you doing, how, how are you thinking is the best um, way to get after it
1: So without getting to my
0: recommendation?
1: Trading. Right, right. <laughs> right. This goes back to my trading style where I prefer the high volatility. When I'm right, I'm right big. And when I'm wrong, I just take the loss and move on. And I don't try to protect um, myself against theta decay very much um, because everything that I've seen when I have to do, that either by selling a spread you know by taking on a spread or whatever it just it's a, the, return, the risk reward profile doesn't match up with how i like to play the game sure um so for me i've just taken puts that are very out of the money and i expect that either i'm right about this whole thing and tesla blows up or i'm not and i just take the loss and so it's very controlled and i know exactly what my position sizing is Um, For players who don't like that Theta Decay loss, you know, don't want to see one or 2% of their account evaporate or however much they put into it evaporate just because things went sideways for six months. Um, There's some very attractive, um, you know, uh, I I don't know if they're called risk reversals or inverse risk reversals. You can sell a a fairly out of the money call and use that to finance a, you know, out of the money put. You can sell, you can do a backspread and, you know, sell the near strike and then buy a larger ratio to the further strike. But these are fairly advanced options trading things. So people would have to kind of know what they're doing, obviously not advice. So Yeah. Right. Cool. Um,
0: Yeah. I, you know, I think, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, this is, this is one of those kind of, it's not really a lotto play, but it's definitely one of those uh, swing for the fences. I, you know, I can definitely see your case where swinging for the fences would be the strategy and taking a small stop or you know just losing it outright if it doesn't work out um so the last thing we touched on prior to that was china and i want to get into like okay we're done with tesla tesla is a great little trade there it's kind of a a warm-up but we got a lot more going on in the world and while i got you here i want to i want to know what you're thinking about i want to see you know what you're what the world looks like to beer in
1: um Okay. Well, I think the most important factor that's sort of left out of most of the narratives that I've been reading and hearing is this idea that there is a euro-dollar financing system that's sort of alongside the primary system that everyone pays attention attention to, which is more or less determined by the Fed. Um, this is a lot of pulling from Jeffrey Snyder's work over to Lombard Partners. Um, and what what the thesis is, is basically that um, ever since you know 1945 and the Bretton Woods system, the the world has run on the dollar as a global reserve currency, and as part of that, foreign banks have been making U.S. denominated loans um, against what turns out to be a very rickety um, collateral, uh, really really you know poorly uh, constructed. Um, reserve requirements and sort of things that you know that that gets into a lot of the detail but basically you've got banks in Europe and in Asia that are making loans denominated in dollars using things that they don't have a lot of control over as the collateral for these loans which causes um, a lot of a whole host of issues that worked out fairly well until about 2008 but since then has been constricting global growth
0: and when you say what they don't have control over it's it's US debt
1: well, it's specifically a complicated set of transactions between banks and bank branches where, you know, there's some amount of this collateral that's being delivered overseas based on the U.S. deficit. You know, when we were buying oil overseas, when we buy, uh, you know, manufactured goods and all that stuff overseas, we deliver dollars into other economies that they can then use as collateral for U.S. denominated loans. But if if you get into the details of what Snyder was talking about, he basically said that in the, the 90s. Uh, banks figured out that they could loan at a higher interest rate in Europe um, than they could in the U.S. And they would transfer their um, collateral from the U.S., their deposits more or less, from the U.S. to Europe to be able to make those loans. Um, And then they figured out they didn't even have to do the transfer. They could just um, make a loan from their U.S. subsidiary to their foreign subsidiary and use the loan in the foreign subsidiary as the collateral for for the further lending out from there, which causes a whole bunch of issues where instead of having a 10 to 1 reserve ratio or whatever, you're getting into like 100 to 1, 1000 to 1. No one even knows because you can't track this stuff. Um, And then that's basically how the entire global economy has worked since 1991. And he's got a great anecdote about 1991, there was some trader who started bidding like completely overbidding U.S. Treasuries and no one could figure out why. Like it was so bad that the regulators told him not to place those bids. And he did it anyway, like just straight up smacked him in the face and just bid way over what the, he should have been bidding for these treasuries. No one could understand what he was doing. And it was later discovered that he was transferring these treasuries to the UK where they didn't have the same rules against rehypothecation. So he was able to take out multiple loans against these treasury uh, notes that he had moved to, to UK and basically, crushes borrowing costs and increases, you know, his carry trade by some crazy factor. Um, and so you're seeing these strange interactions between U.S. banking systems that's been designed with a U.S. focus and the Fed that's really staying inside that lane and then everybody else basically using dollars for everything anyway and no one really wanting to deal with that.
0: And so right now we have, I mean, just today, we're back above $40 on the uh um, Argentinian peso, which when I was living in South America, I remember it being three pesos to one. And then towards the end of my time in, uh, South America. So like eight years later, uh, it was nine to one, which was obviously a massive, massive change. You just lost, you know, 67% of your net worth, uh, in, in less than a decade. And you know this happens every every few years it seems in Argentina. We're at 42 today. At least we got up to 42. I forget where we're at. We might be back down to. They might be pushing it back below 40 again. But this doesn't really become an issue. Like like everything kind of flows and and everybody is happy and and doing their thing at least in the United States um, <laughs> until something like Turkey happened earlier in twenty the summer twenty eighteen, until you had India, until you had uh, Indonesia. Uh, you know, it's reminiscent of the Asia the Asian crisis in the in the late nineties. Is that starting to put pressure these more of these emerging market economies that's that really hyperinflate overnight? Is that how's that gonna play out with this?
1: Um so or what I are your thoughts do on that? This? <laughs> Yeah, so I don't do that much with emerging markets, um, mostly because I feel like that's not where the game is right now. Um, what I'm seeing is that, like, when you look at December of last year, there were strange pieces of data um, in what's called the the tick data. I forget even what that acronym stands for, but it's basically a measure of like U.S. denominated assets being held overseas and owed to the U.S. or owed outside the U.S., it's all very esoteric stuff. But when you start to look at these charts about what's going on with U.S. denominated assets overseas, like in Japan, in China, in China, um, in Europe, it looks like there was some sort of liquidity stress in December that spilled over into U.S. markets. And it looks like that seems to be a recurring pattern since 2008, that when you get these very strange liquidity stresses overseas, it's it's very strongly changing, Is very quickly and strongly changing the demand for dollars. And it's basically like someone's getting margin called that we can't see.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and so you're saying December, we're talking September to December of 2018, December specifically is when it really kicked off. So some large sovereign Entity, some government.
1: I mean, it literally has to be on the size of a government or like you know a primary bank for a country, a large country. Um, it can't be hedge funds. You know? Right. Um, and one of the, the most compelling pieces of evidence that I've actually found about this is something that Luke Roman had talked about about how the Chinese had stopped buying U.S. Treasuries in the third quarter of 2014. And then if you look at that chart, they actually sold off a bunch in early 2016. Um, And if you look at that timing, it actually is when they started their crazy stimulus that, you know, basically turned everything around at the beginning of 2016. And so what it looks like people are doing is despite all of these strategic, you know, um, hypotheses about, oh, China playing Go, all these other things, it seems like everybody's really starved for dollars and they're literally waiting until they have to until they're being sold out of them, more or less, right? And then they're like, okay, we got to do something. What do we have this amount of dollars that we can liquidate so that we can fund whatever deficit we're facing? And the reason why I think this starts to make sense is because if you look at it, like the US government is printing a certain amount of dollars. And I don't know how they determine that is or determine what that is or you know whatever. Right now, it seems to be mostly deficit spending. Um, but they're doing that independent of the size of the global economy and the global economy is constantly issuing more and more credit debt in US dollars and so the service demands of that debt are requiring more dollars just to be passed around to maintain the service right like even if you have the income you need to actually get your hands on the dollar to hand to the next person and the US federal reserve and treasury are not taking this into account at all and so it seems like the pop, the, the the ratio of US printed money divided by U.S. service costs or total debt, however you want to do it, is, has gotten significantly smaller since 2008. And it had gotten significantly smaller, significantly smaller since 2000 to 2008 as well. And so this should, in my simple thinking, um, add stress to the system. Because there's not as much real money just to be handed around as the debt keeps going up and up and up.
0: Interesting. Okay. Um, and so... Another thing that that really happened towards the end of uh, 2018, right in line, and one of the you know best uh, global macro players out there, is oil dropped basically in half. We went from nearly 80 down to 40, almost like well, actually to the day, I want to say it it reversed. Oil reversed its down move. The day before the U.S., well, the, you know, basically all the economy, uh, December 26th is when everything bounced and reversed. Um, there's been a lot of talk about, and, and kind of I'm shifting gears a little bit to oil, but when you go from a commodity that runs the entire world, that was at $80 and within three months is back down to $40, that has a massive impact on inflation. That has a massive impact on what the Fed – does or doesn't do, is or isn't doing, with pricing, or I'm sorry, with interest rates, with buyback, with all the all the different things. Uh, we're you know we're at 60 right now, 59, 58. We're, I mean we're literally right in the middle of where we were from that 80 to 40. Do you have any thoughts on oil and how that played into this? I mean it, it's almost exact same one for one. Oil starts dropping hard after a blow off top. It seems like. And then everything else caught on board with that.
1: Right. Um, so this is getting to the edge of my speculation. I'm not a su- I'm not an expert on the oil markets at all. Um, what I do know is that around that $80, $77 range, um, you know, Art Berman was on Macro Voices talking about how oil was basically fundamentally overvalued by maybe 10 or 15%, um, which does not get you down to the $42 at all. Um, but when I was doing my original research actually on Tesla's price going up opposite everything else. What I was discovering was, you know, you had the uh, what the option sellers guy blowing up his fund. You had this crazy move in oil. You had a lot of oil services stocks that were trading at ridiculous, you know, discounts to book value, and it seemed like everything where there was some sort of smart active player who would have taken a fairly large position in that was just getting destroyed. And so my my best theory about what happened was that oil had a fairly large speculative position and, you know, there was just a, they got hit with a liquidity crunch that might've been, you know, some of this Euro dollar stuff that we talked about, and then maybe exacerbated by redemptions or something like that, where it was literally everyone just getting knocked out of their positions and looking for liquidity at the same time.
0: Interesting. Interesting. And so China, I, let, let's bring it back to the big player then, obviously, if we're, if you know, we're talking about what is shaping everything with euro dollar and with the fed and the biggest player out there is generally speaking i would say china that has if china stops everything and and you know no stimulus we have a different world than we have currently right now and if they jump in and and you know with the con the the hundred year anniversary coming up they're everybody's expecting it to have an effect, a stimulus effect in the economy. That's pretty much the given too, I believe. if Unless uh, unless something's changed in the last few days when I've been on a plane, that's basically a given across all global macro is that China's gonna start stimulating and, and prop everything up to look pretty for the 100-year uh, the anniversary. What are your thoughts in that range?
1: Um, so I've definitely heard the same thing and it makes a lot of sense from uh, Xi Jinping's you know sort of strategic outlook that that would be how you'd want to play it. But again, when you look at uh, some of the euro dollar charts over the last year for the Chinese stuff, and specifically the Hong Kong dollar and all that, it looks like the Chinese might be starved for dollars. And so if they can stimulate in yuan, sure, 100%, they're on board, but they might be hitting some sort of constraint that's, that's more out of their control than we would anticipate, is my concern. Um, there seems to be some, stress that the Chinese are struggling to get enough dollars to service their own debts. Um, and I don't have anything to really back this up except that it seems to match uh, you know, the, the story I'm seeing in the markets with the prices and the the tick data and that sort of stuff that uh, Snyder's calling out. Um, but I'm concerned that there's something going on in the Euro dollar market that will um, cause these sort of massive tide shifting. It's like, it, it, the best description I've come across it is when you take all this year dollar stuff and all these passive investing stuff, it's that um, the tides have gotten much bigger while the float has gotten much smaller. There's fewer active investors to take the other side of your trade. The passive investors don't care. And then as you get moved around, every all the volatility just gets ramped up because there's a smaller pool compared to the assets under management for active traders. Um, so, yeah, I, I just everything I'm looking at says that there is a sign of distress. And then you look at the recent rally from December even, right? Uh, retail investors haven't really participated, and the equity fund flows from foreign investors have actually been negative. So what looks like is going on is that people are less and less willing to sell because of all the Fed dovishness, but there isn't a ton of buying pressure.
0: You're talking equities um, or just
1: generally the U.S.? U.S. equities, like S&P 500 and NASDAQ. And indexes, yeah. Um, yeah the index it's like it just looks like there's not this rally doesn't look like it's supported on buying pressure it looks like it's supported on people who have these assets to sell being really tight-fisted um which is not what you would expect to see if everything was going fine overseas and everyone was rushing into the market at the same time right you would expect to see the foreigners coming in you'd expect to see retail jumping in and you're not seeing that um so it that's my that's my current thing to watch out for is looking for signs of stress in especially China um, that they are not able to actually deliver the uh, stimulus that they they would and that's not going we're not going to know it. that yeah we're not going to see that for another six or nine months right they're not even gonna, no one even intends for them to try right now so it's not something we're going to know until the end of the year but it might not show up
0: yeah yeah well you know we've we've rallied. In essence, from December 26th till, uh, you know, last week, I suppose, uh, was it 19% on the uh, equity indexes? And, yeah. you know, nobody was there. Who, who was jumping in? At, what I did see was a lot of people shorting all the way up. They saw that move and just thought, yep, this is, you know, what we saw in, in Q4 is real and let's get in. Let's uh, let's add to our shorts. And, you know, from what I saw, it was a lot more of a short covering rally after you got past, let's say, you know, the halfway mark, let's say 10%, is when it really started to turn into more of a short covering rally. That is to say, people who were shorting uh, the bounces, or who were short in December, uh, getting hit with their stops at entry. You know, if you if you started shorting the first week or two of, of December, you did pretty good up until let's say the first week or two of uh, of January. It was a very quick turnaround. You were basically break even. And so you sit yeah. on it for a little bit. And I'm coming at this from a trader's perspective because, you know, I, I traded it. Um and I recall, you know, I, I had conversations and nobody was buying with both this. Nobody was you know, I I can basically say my father in law was just not selling um, he didn't sell in Q4. Uh, and you know, I, again, I like to talk to those people. I like to talk to everybody else. I like to talk to the, as everybody says, the retail dumb money, but, uh, <laughs> um, they seem to be a lot smarter than a lot of the, uh, smart money out there. And, you know, nobody was selling, nobody had pressure. What I do know is that I have been asked a couple of times recently of like, do you think we're going to, You know, do you think this is it? Do you think I should get out or, you know, and and this this is the the retail dumb money, quote, unquote. Uh, These are people who I think have really strong constitutions and are willing to sit. They're not asking. So what's most importantly of that conversation, I got to say, is that they're not asking, should I be buying? And, you know, we're still below our all time highs on the equity indexes and, and, you know, on FANG, especially on tech. You know, that rotation from tech to financial happened. We had a, you know, we have a consumer staple. There's a lot of different rotation. And what I have experienced the last 10 years was everybody doing what they can to buy more tech, buy more FANG, you know, get long the S&P. And that's not what people are talking to me about. The, you know, the people that don't know anything about euro dollars, people don't know anything about what, uh, you know, tick. Or any of those sort of things. And so people that don't know anything about that are simply asking, should I be getting out of this? Should I be taking my money from tech? Should I take, you know, take call it a day and and maybe move into bonds, or maybe move into healthcare, or maybe you know move into cash or something? That's the conversation that I'm having at the top here, which is interesting. It's just interesting. We the conversation did not happen during Q4. Should I be buying more? That was I was not hearing that. Should I be buying this dip? It's just, oh, I'm just gonna sit and wait it out. And then, you know, now they're finally looking to be like, I don't want to relive December twenty-sixth. So that's right. still that's or December twenty well, Christmas, let's just call it. I don't right. want to relive that. Um they they felt it and they were reminded of two thousand eight. Uh the these people were trading, you know, or, or investing. The the people I've been talking to, they um you know, they've, they've lived through dot com. They've lived through the housing crisis. They've lived through um, you know Russia, though they probably didn't pay attention to the uh, to the LTCM and all that. But they, they have a lot of experience. And in their mind, they're like, yeah, you know what? I should probably be taking some of these profits off. So that's you yeah, know, that's yeah. the average. That's the average person. They're not trying to buy hand over fist. And and with that sort of rally, that's what you would have expected. Right. So the the narrative is and- different.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of people who are saying, oh, this might be like 1994, right, where we have this dip and we're just going to take off to new all-time highs. And the only way that I can see that happening is if the MMT impacts are starting to take take effect much faster than anyone's talked about. Um, Because if you look at 1994 that was a middle of a large expansion in the euro dollar system and then you you know like you look at these things there was a lot more money floating around during these periods of time that then led into these peaks and you sort of see the same thing in the 1920s with you know that sort of lead into it where you know there was an expansion of the money supply that then caused that sort of rush and right now i'm seeing the opposite evidence so I'm expecting the MMT stuff to take off and there to be a monetization of the debt and all this other stuff that will then cause you to need to be in. And we're talking S- S&P 500, 4,000, 4,500 or whatever. But I just don't see any signs that it's taken off yet. And that seems to be the bullish argument is that, okay, this is going to take off like that. And it just doesn't jive yet for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, it is an interesting period of time, too. Like, I mean, it, it, we are a year prior to an election. Um, an election year, uh, 2015 looked a lot, you know, was was a little volatile. We had some interesting things happen in 2015. Um, pre-election years are usually pretty interesting, and you know, I, this also looks a lot like what happened in 2016 after the election. As soon as the election was done, boom, off to the races. 1994, right? That was a pre-election, you know, pre-election year. Um, like 2018 is a pre or a, you know, mid mid-election year, I guess, say midterms. So 94 is very similar. So, you know, taking into account the people who are really influencing the, they need the economy to be strong in order to, or they need some sort of financial narrative to be um, on their side, depending on, you know, who has control of what and who's, you know, who's really moving things. So it all lines up, certainly, and we yeah. can probably go back 100 years to see the same thing.
1: We can totally expect the US government to basically be doing everything they can to be supportive of the stock market going forward. Um, I just don't know that they're ready to pull the trigger on monetizing the debt. And short of that, the context has changed a lot from, you know, 1994 to now. You know, the US is a much smaller part of the GDP. And even, you know, Even when that wasn't the case, the Fed has lost control of the market on several occasions where people were like, oh, the Fed will ease, they'll do the backstop thing, and it just didn't work. And so I don't, I I have a hard time just taking the straight analog comparison and saying, okay, this is what this is like. When I'm saying, when everyone is, I think, correctly saying China's the big deal, they seem to be under stress, and then we're looking at a US election cycle, right? It just doesn't jive that that's going to be the big driver anymore.
0: Well, so if, if I mean, so we need to get, if you think about it, we have, you know, the two biggest leaders, uh, or, you know, two biggest economies in the world are coming up into two political um, flashpoints, let's call it, or inflection points, where, you know, the communist 100-year uh, celebration and a, another U.S. presidential election all happening, and what's been on the table, what's been stressed what's what really caused a lot of drama has been the the um, tariffs with China and so you know if you push that into a a really I don't know a bit of a corner I guess and you start to see that everything you know we are we've arrested the um, CFO or I believe we arrested that CFO of Wei. And yeah. obviously, there, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't see, but they both would want good market conditions when it comes time to celebrate, when it comes time to go for re-election. You know, those two things are the two biggest players in the world both want that. And so it comes down to a bit of a timing situation, I would imagine.
1: Of who so I would benefits. be careful with that, though. Okay. Um, Because... Xi Jinping definitely wants a supportive environment for him to stay in power coming up to the next milestone. But that doesn't have to look like anything we think it should look like. Oh, course, know, authoritarian, yeah. oh regimes, yeah. Uh, yeah, authoritarian regimes often gain strength from stress. And China looks to be under quite a bit of stress right now.
0: Yeah. OK, I get that. I get, OK, I get where you're going with that. Yeah, that's absolutely um, OK. Yeah.
1: Like the U.S. would collapse. The U.S. president would collapse. Like their support would just disappear if we suddenly end up in this horrible environment where people are like having to ration aluminum foil again or something. Right. Right. Like That's just not going to work. But it might not be that case in China because they're under so much stress. They're failing now to deliver on their promises of forever growth. Right. And constant increases in um, standard of living for their population. There's a lot of people who've been brought out of poverty, but there are a lot of people still waiting their turn. It doesn't seem like an environment where um, you're going to get a lot of happy-go-lucky feelings out of an authoritarian regime. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, that's true. And well, hey, they just spent 12 billion, or just signed a deal to do 16 billion nuclear spend. That was, uh, I mean, that that could be the first sign of um, stimulus starting to really kick in. If they're going to be building, uh, I forgot the link. But I saw that today. I think it was $16 billion or $12 billion to build nuclear power plants. Obviously, that one is something that they expect. You know, they have poor air quality, for sure. They yeah. have a lot of people. That China's China's business. They, you know, they just build and expand, build and expand. And that creates jobs and that, you know, gets pushed back into the economy. So I saw that today. It seems like something that might be, um, they might be starting to work towards that um the stimulus spending anyway interesting
1: yeah, yeah interesting. i mean i guess the sum of all this is that i expect there to be some danger in the next like three month period of time and i expect some danger at the end of the year where maybe the chinese stimulus doesn't show up um but maybe i'm wrong and you know we're off to s&p 500 3200 I I, right. I I don't it doesn't doesn't it doesn't jive with me but it's possible and i've done and i'm not only making short bets
0: so um, what 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 in it? the next three months besides Tesla, what do you thinking is is a catalyst or what do you think is going to to be like the signs that it's really happening besides and you know obviously another downturn in equities is there something that's gonna cause that or are we just is it just gonna play out? we're already we've already started the it's already started we've just taken a bounce and a breather and we're turning back down. What are your thoughts there
1: um so my thinking is over the next three months, we should probably see another liquidity event that kind of drags everything down together.
0: Um, another margin, yeah. co- another margin call type situation that you alluded to earlier. exactly. We were talking about it earlier. Okay.
1: Yeah, it'll it'll just look like you know it'll look completely uh, indiscriminate. It won't be like oh this sector did poorly because of whatever. It will be literally like everyone just got nailed. So <laughs>
0: So that's that's okay that's the big one. Yeah. And it's uh, And then
1: if I'm right, that would that would be the trigger to start monetizing the debt.
0: Okay. So the Fed steps in and really starts putting in some work.
1: Yeah. And so we've never had the size of fiscal deficit that we've had now while QE's been active. And so I think a lot of people thought, "Oh, QE was going to be hyperinflationary," but QE doesn't actually print money into the economy. All it does is sort of box people out of making the risk-free return rate. So it's not actually inflationary at the economy level. It's just driving up asset prices. Hmm. Whereas when you add the fiscal component to it, now you're getting real dollars into people's pockets and you can actually get the real inflation that people have been looking for.
0: And you feel that that's, uh, that'll be a result.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I, I honestly believe that's the only way the U S gets out of this jam is to inflate away the debt service costs in real terms. And so we're looking to do it, but, uh, you know, Obama couldn't because of the, you know, his fiscal spending was completely constrained during the time that they were doing all this monetary stuff. And I think right. we're finally in a place where those two things are going to come together and people are probably going to like it unless you're a boomer.
0: <laughs> <So>. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I would definitely agree there. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is kind of what I was getting to with oil when, you know, one of your biggest um, inflationary inputs there, you know, basically the cost of almost everything. Got cut in half. It was a tough way to. Um, maybe maybe there's somebody out there who's manipulating the uh, the system in a in a much more interesting way to keep inflation from being the trigger that gets them to monetize the debt, or I'm sorry, uh, requiring inflation. Sorry, I'm not sure. I anyway, anyway, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just throwing it out there. We, we had, a, a, you know, basically at, at the end of or the beginning of Q4 2018, we're at about 80 bucks a barrel. All through Q4, we dropped down to 40. And then the inflationary argument kind of goes when when because that has an actual effect on everything in the economy. Right. Like if you're paying, you know, in California, for example, four or five dollars a gallon, it's down to three. That's noticeable. It It's readily noticeable for a lot of people who are paying for fuel you know the cost of electricity the cost of running a business it all you know if you're transporting something it costs money and when that gets cut in half in a quarter less than a quarter um that has that has some pretty big effects on interest rate you know what what the fed can do with interest rates when actually individuals are feeling the benefit of lower oil prices
1: right um, yeah, it definitely does. I, I, I still think that a lot of that move was basically speculative, people being knocked out of position. They, you know, the inflation narrative really picked up. What was it like March, April last year? Yeah. Um, and so I think they were seeing that go off into the sunset, and then you get this liquidity event that margin calls people, and you have to unwind all of that really fast. And now we're back up to sixty inside a couple months because this seems to be somewhat, this seems to be somewhat closer to what at least Art Berman claims is the sort of steady state um price for ongoing demand right now mm-hmm. um, so I think that was just literally you couldn't afford to hold the position anymore
0: yeah yeah well it was good trading um, yeah well I think you know we've uh, we've done pretty good here is there anything else you want to cover anything you got on the head um, on your dashboard maybe on the horizon
1: um, I mean we don't have to dig into all the details right now but my biggest long thesis is actually uranium which you brought up with China. Interesting. And
0: who, yeah, you know, hit that up a little bit. I don't mind. I like uranium.
1: Um, So there's a lot of different factors that are supportive of uranium. Um, The underlying um, economics are amazing, right? There's, the US gets 20% of its electricity from uranium. Um, We produce a very small percentage of the uranium fuel that is required to feed our reactors Um, and you know the price of that fuel is about three percent of the operating cost of a uranium or of a nuclear power plant. So it's not actually a material um, cost factor. Um, so there's a lot of room for the price to move upwards, but it hasn't after Fukushima and there's been a bunch of other stuff along the way. But the reason why it's really interesting right now is because we have the uh, Section 232 petition that was started um, to basically ask the U.S. to strategically source a certain percentage of its uranium fuel from the US. And that you know, is mining it and enriching it and doing all the different things to make it ready. Because right now, we're getting so much from foreign sources that we're strategically at risk. Um, you know, if the Russians decided that they you know, weren't happy with us, they actually could threaten our uranium supply, which, again, 20% of our electricity supply, that's not a good strategic position to be in. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of these things come to a head just as there's this regulatory decision that needs to be made between April and, I think, July. And so you're seeing a really good time to to see some of these things to start to resolve to the upside. Um, a lot Again, just like Tesla, there's been a lot of people who are way deeper in the weeds that have been watching this stuff for three or four years and saying, you know, this is going to be awesome, but it hasn't happened yet. And it seems like we're finally at the point where it should start to turn and actually take off. Now.
0: Isn't Russia, like, one of the largest um, uh, refiners
1: of uranium? Uh, Yes. So there's a whole process that goes between digging up uranium and making it ready to put in a nuclear reactor. And basically, the Russians control almost all of that.
0: (laughs) So an economy that's smaller than the size of Texas and everybody consistently wonders, why do we pay attention to what they're thinking? Why do we care what's going on? This is actually a pretty interesting reason why we pay attention to that. They actually yeah. can control about 20% of our um, our electricity. Exactly. And I mean,
1: when I say Russia, I don't actually mean things that are only inside Russia. They have a lot of influence over Kazakhstan, where the largest producer of uranium is and that sort of thing. So it's in their sphere of influence. And, you know, obviously when if things got tense, we know where those, where those votes are going to fall. So,
0: right. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Now, how are you hitting the, uh, how are you hitting uranium? Are you stockpiling in your backyard? What's the, what's the,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, so there's a bunch of, so the entire uranium space is actually very tiny. I believe the latest estimate I heard is about 4 billion pretty much across the globe. So it's a great play for smaller players. Um, There's only one really major, company that you can invest in, which is Cameco. Um, and they're pretty much the only ones that have any sort of options trade. So I'm doing some leaps on Cameco. Um, and then there's, you just start to digging into the, the juniors. And there's a lot of great resources for that, where, you know, you see these companies that have the potential to significantly increase their value, you know, 10 X more or more based on, you know, the uranium market finally picking back up again.
0: Hmm. Uh, what Cameco, are they uh, U.S. listed?
1: Uh, they're U.S. listed under CCJ. Um, I believe they're actually, yeah, uh, most of their, res- their, their assets are in Canada, but they, I believe they do have the rights to some U.S. assets. And so all of these details you get into where we don't know exactly how the 232 stuff is going to play out and how much of that is going to be U.S.-based mining or U.S.-controlled mining or U.S. and its allies, we don't know any of those details, and that's kind of what's holding everybody up on um basically buying uranium in long-term contracts the way they usually do. But regardless of how 232 plays out, we know that the price of uranium does not support uh, the demand. And so it has to go up and these companies need to start making more money or they just won't mine um, what they've got in the ground. <clears throat> so it's a good time to take some bets, knowing that once 232 is resolved, that's when the action's really gonna get started.
0: And you said that's in March,
1: um, uh, I believe the window, f- the, I believe the window for the determination starts in April and continues April. through July.
0: Okay. April through July. So we are in March right now. We're mid-March. We're on the, we're waning the month here. Uh, we're on the last quarter of the month and, uh, <laughs> I have such weird ways to speak about how many <laughs> days are in a month. Um, yeah, we're March 20th today. Uh, so we're coming up into April right away. Um, has, well, let's have a look here. I mean, I'm, I'm curious if there's a bit of CCJ. See if there's a bit of a, doesn't seem like too much voli- you know, It doesn't seem like it's pumping too much into, um, into the news. It's actually down quite a bit over the last couple of years. Um, does seem like a nice little uptrend towards as we get into this window of, uh, of time coming in April. It's probably a pretty interesting setup.
1: Yeah, this is the type of thing that I, t- I try to look for where it seems like it'll reprice very quickly. You know, um, once 232 resolves and people start going into the market for long-term contracts and, the you know, the market starts paying attention again. Since the space is so small, since there's so few, you know, reasonable players that can actually bring uranium supply on in the next five years, it seems like it's going to move fast the way that Tesla might move fast. So. <laughs>
0: Uh, rocket fuel is this guy's trading style.
1: That's pretty much what I look for, yeah.
0: I love it. Um, <clears throat> love it. Good inflection points. Um, clearly defined risks. I, yeah, it's great. This is a great setup. I like it. Yeah.
1: Cool. Well, it also um, tends to line up with oh. the hedge Hedgeye uh, Quad 3 stuff. I don't know if you're familiar there with that. There it so. is. There
0: it is. <laughs> yeah, Quad 3, uh, definitely, which moving back and forth between quad three and quad four had been their last little thing, I believe. And if you want to expand a little bit, we'll give a little shout out to hedge, uh, hedge eye on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I really enjoy their quad framework. I feel like it's added a lot of structure to what I've been doing and you know, I, what they're projecting for the U S is three quarters of quad three now going all the way to the end of the year. And during that time, you're seeing slowing growth and increasing inflation, which is actually really supportive of real assets. Right. So energy plays and that sort of thing tend to do really well. So they're they're very bullish on oil. And I feel like uranium is like an even more uh, juiced up version of the oil play.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, highly lever- not highly leveraged, just highly illiquid, relatively speaking. It's such a small market. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's um, we'll uh, let's go ahead and cut it off here. Um, we'll uh, we'll definitely uh, bring you back on here and maybe do a victory lap on Tesla if we time it right. Hopefully. Or <laughs> no, but I'd definitely like to get you back on and, and we'll follow up on uh, on what you're you know what you're seeing and, and the way things have progressed since uh Tesla's right there at some inflection points. We have uranium at some inflection points and we definitely have US equities and this whole Euro dollar phenomena playing out. Um, definitely wanna check back in at another date when we get some of those. Make sure to Hit me up if I if I somehow missed all the fireworks, and we'll make this happen again. Definitely, we'll do. Yeah, well, it was great chatting with you again, Byron. Um, let me go ahead and uh, give give a give your website. Is that is that the best place you want people to yeah. get in touch? Okay. So yeah,
1: I'm at the website and I'm at uh, Twitter at Percy Capital.
0: So just to I'll spell it out here. It's P E R S is in Sam E I D is in Delta Dash capital.com and that would be you said at Perseed on um, on Twitter.
1: Yeah, at Perseed Capital, same way you just spelled it with no oh, dash.
0: With no dash on the Twitters. Yeah. Great, and uh, so I'll go ahead and put that in the show notes as well, so people can reach out and chat with you, get you uh, get you famous. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was great chatting with you, man. Really, uh, really good insight. You
1: too. Thanks. All right. All right stay in touch. Sounds good.